Uh, my guest today is Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell, sixth man to walk on the moon. Dr. Edgar Mitchell is the author of two very interesting books. His first book is Psychic Exploration and his second book is The Way of the Explorer. Uh, Dr. Ed Edgar Mitchell is the founder of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and is a co-founder of the Association of Space Explorers, an international organization of those who have experienced space travel. Uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell is with me on the phone from United States. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, you joined NASA uh, in 1966. Please talk to us about your education and career before joining NASA. <clears throat> well, uh, let me just lead up to that and tell you how this all happened. Is that okay? Yes. Uh, I, when I graduated from college in 1952, the Korean War was on. And uh, in the United States, the draft into the military was on obligated military service. And uh, so the draft board was planning to take me into the Army. But I had started to fly when I was 13 years old and already had my pilot's license before I went to college. And uh, I did not want to go into the Army. If I was going to go in to serve military, I wanted to fly. So what I did to assure uh, that was I enlisted in the Navy Uh, went to training, became a sailor, and then went to officer school and became an officer, and then uh, got to go for fl flight training with the Navy. So I spent those years <coughs> in the Navy uh, of the Korean War years. The Korean War ended up and was gone, but I was still paying obligated service to the Navy. <coughs> and coming back home in 1957, when Sputnik went up, And I was aboard an aircraft carrier coming home to test pilot duty. Mm -hmm. And I realized that uh, human history was just being changed but by orbiting spacecraft. And I wanted to be a part of that. So I set my uh, goal then on <coughs> becoming one of the astronauts who were just then being selected into the program. But I realized since I was a bit younger and had not had as much test pilot experience, Mm -hmm. that I would need more uh, education. So I uh, set myself the goal of going back to uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of our premier technical schools, and got a doctor's degree, and it all, that all ended up so that I was able, I was selected at the NASA in 1966 with uh, both test pilot credentials and a doctor's degree from a major technical institute, and that was kind of the story of how I got there. Mm -hmm. When you joined NASA, uh, I believe you were part of the Apollo team from day one, and your group was also known as the Original 19. <laughs> yes, that was kind of our takeoff. Uh, <clears throat> the Original 7 were the uh, first astronauts selected, and they called themselves the Original 7, so we called ourselves the Original 19. It was kind of our little, little joke. Mm -hmm. uh, the target of going to the moon was set by uh, President John F. Kennedy and uh, there was a fear that Russians might reach there before Americans. Uh, talk to us about the morale of the people involved uh, in the Apollo program. Well, certainly Kennedy's uh, challenge of getting to the moon within the decade, it was a political move. It was a move to make sure 
that the United States could beat the Soviets to the moon and uh, exert technology, exert a superiority in, in the space endeavor. <clears throat> and going to the moon was a way to do that. And those of us who were uh, uh, privileged to get selected and go in to work on that program, uh, we worked very hard at it because we wanted to carry out the uh, Kennedy uh, dictum, as it was, mm-hmm. to get to the moon by the end of the decade and uh, be the first there. So it was a real challenge. Uh, the people in NASA worked very, very hard to uh, do get to the moon first. And, uh, of course, we had Werner von Braun and his uh, scientists from Germany on the team who had who had come over from uh, Germany after World War II mm-hmm. and integrated been integrated into the space effort in uh, in the United States very shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, uh, you were scheduled to go uh, to the moon with Apollo 13, uh, but then it was changed. Uh, when Apollo 13 problem occurred, uh, I guess uh, you were in the control room. Tell us about the mood in the control room uh, at that time and what exactly was your role uh, during that incident? Well, let me, let me set this up for our listeners. <clears throat> yes, I was scheduled to be on Apollo 13 because that was our our um, selection procedure in those days. Mm-hmm. However, it, the selection was based upon the fact that uh, we were required to serve on a backup crew first, uh, which was a training, being a part of a training mission, uh, and then three flights later after we served on a backup crew, uh, we would be eligible to serve on a prime crew. So I served as a backup crew on Apollo 10, and that would make Apollo 13 my natural mission to be served on a prime crew and get to go into space. Mm-hmm. However, Gordon Cooper, who was in the first group of astronauts, was with me on Apollo 10. He was commander, backup commander on Apollo 10. But he retired from the program, left the program after that. And um, <clears throat> Alan Shepard, who had been, was also in the first group of astronauts, but he had had a uh, medical problem and been grounded for some time <coughs> and <coughs> and had that fixed and he was back on flight status and he wanted to take over um, Gordon's place uh, on Apollo 13. Well, we uh, Houston agreed to that but NASA headquarters in Washington said, Alan, you haven't been training in recent years enough. Perhaps best to take a little more another little more training time why don't you and switch missions with uh, the Apollo 14 crew, which was Jim Lovell's crew, mm-hmm. and uh, we were all friends and good buddies, of course, and we didn't really want to do that, but headquarters, the boss said so, so that's what we did. We took 14, uh, they took 13, they got a bad machine, we got a good machine, and yes. we spent a lot of time helping get them home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so coming back to that point that uh, you were in the control room uh, at that time when that incident occurred. In Apollo 13, right, when that happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was. what was uh, exactly your role at that time? Well, I was just simply observing at that point. Uh, we, we spent time uh, often in the control room just uh, watching what was going on. <coughs> and mm-hmm. it just so happened... I was there. I was about ready to go home for the evening, 
when um, the explosion took place, we realized we had a problem. And so I was immediately suggested to go to the simulator, the lunar module simulator, because it was obvious we were going to use the lunar module as the became obvious very quickly. We were going to use the lunar module as the lifeboat or the rescue boat, or the rescue spacecraft, to bring them home. And uh, since I was the most advanced astronaut at, on the ground at that point in uh, the lunar module activities, I was assigned to go to the lunar module simulator in Houston and start doing things that they would have to do in space to use the lunar module and to bring them home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. In your view, uh, is movie Apollo 13 close to reality? <clears throat> the Apollo 13 movie was really quite good. Um, the only problem, <laughs> there's a nice little story with that. The, the movie, the Apollo 13 movie, was premiered in Houston at the Space Center. And when I went to the premiere uh, of that movie, the principal, Ron Howard, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Ron Howard, and oh, who was the actor? Um, anyhow, they stopped me as I came in the door and said, we want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, what do you want to talk about? And they said, well, the most, many of the footage that you did on Apollo 13, the editors left on the cutting room floor. So I was kind of the casualty of the editing process mm-hmm. and had very little to do with Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. But they did, uh, they did make that up to me in a subsequent television series about the program, about going to the moon and uh, my part in it. So, uh, but during the Apollo 13, I didn't get much uh, footage in the Apollo 13 movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for Apollo 14, uh, you were the pilot of the lunar module. So you were in charge of landing the module on the moon and then bringing it back well, to the Well, yeah, we both trained in that, but we were still a crew. Okay. And, um, and so the commander was, uh, Alan Shepard was really um, um, the commander and um, we were both operating the machine. Mm-hmm. We just had our particular chores to do. And actually the autopilot and the computer were doing most of the work. We were just kind of touching it up there and making sure, making it sure it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what was uh, 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 more challenging, landing on the moon or coming back uh, to the command module? Well, uh, uh, they were both. They both had their their problems and issues. Mm-hmm. Landing on the moon, because we had had some problems in the spacecraft. Um, we had those had to be corrected before we could land, mm-hmm. and they were. So everything went just exactly as it was supposed to have, except we had to correct some uh, malfunctions that took place before we could land. But we, that's exactly what our training was about. Was the training was what do you do when something doesn't go quite right? And uh, we were prepared to do it. We did it, and so the landing was quite successful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and subsequently yes. the docking after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you manage to actually land uh, on exactly on the spot that you you thought you would? Well, we were within uh, we were within um, uh, fifty meters of it for sure. We were not very far away. 
now you stayed on the moon for about 22 hours and you walked on the moon for about 9 hours uh, what memories do you have uh, actually not, not quite right okay we were on the moon for over 30 about 30 hours okay and we walked on the, we walked on the moon for um, uh, almost 10 hours our missions our missions outside the spacecraft were 5 hours each Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't want to push it to the point uh, we would be out of oxygen and and water in five five hours. So we got back in within about five minutes with about five minutes to spare each time. Mm -hmm. uh, what memories do you have of those ten hours? Well, they're wonderful memories because. <clears throat> but I must say to our audience, <clears throat> we were doing everything by the checklist. Uh, we had a checklist on one wrist. Uh, telling us the next step we had agreed to do and had practice to do, and a watch, stopwatch on the other, on the other arm, uh, and we were always uh, pushing, pushing, pushing just to stay on time, and that was because every piece of equipment had on the spacecraft on the, for the surface was brand new equipment, and it had never really been tested except in the laboratory before it was shipped to us. And new equipment has a way of breaking sometimes. And so we have designed our mission with the idea that probably something of the lunar equipment might break and we'd have to throw it away and go on without it. Well, that did not happen. But uh, because we programmed, uh, programmed it uh, <clears throat> ourselves for about 120% of human capacity, mm -hmm. when nothing broke, that we could throw away and save a little time, we had to work to 120% of capacity. <laughs> and mm -hmm. That made that made us that we were really push, push, push very hard to get everything done, get back and get home and do it, get all the tasks, the task done that we had set out for ourselves. Uh, uh, one question that I'm very keen to ask you is, does the Earth look blue when you look at Uh, look at it from the surface of the moon? No. <clears throat> it looks uh, very much like uh, from what you could see of it from the surface of the moon. It looks kind of like the moon does at night with, with the sun shining on it. Mm -hmm. It's a very bright, reflective surface. It's when you we can get in a little closer, then it starts to look uh, more like an earth. But at the distance of the moon... Um, with it directly overhead, for us at least, uh, it looked just like a, uh, um, a, bright, a bright star, like, well, like the moon looks to us when we see it, a, a full moon or a half moon or something. Mm -hmm. It looked very much like that to us when we were on the moon. Mm -hmm. But when you get in a little bit closer, of course, you can see uh, a little more features, um, and the Earth starts to look blue and beautiful at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, gravity difference is one thing, but uh, emotionally, uh, what difference uh, did you feel at that time, like, you know, walking on the surface of the moon? Well, again, we did steal a few moments to say wow and, and, and view the surface and everything, but by and large, we were so pushed to get everything done that we wanted to get done that it would just work, work, work continuously. And every once in a while, like when we went to the top of Cone Crater 
and it was a little bit, quite a bit elevated from the surface, we'd take a, a few seconds, mostly, and say, wow, what not that magnificent? Look at that. But uh, we didn't have a lot of time to do that. So we had to essentially rely upon our pictures and our memories of it, tourist, and look at the beautiful uh, landscape uh, while we were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the entire Apollo 14 mission, what was the most nerve-wracking moment uh, that you experienced? <clears throat> I guess the most nerve-wracking moment uh, was before we landed. And we were on the last pass, uh, last er- orbit of the moon, and before we started down, mm-hmm. and we were essentially right over the landing site, <clears throat> and a... Uh, uh, a light came on in the cockpit saying we had uh, an abort condition, an abort switch came on. Now what that turned out to be was there was a, a piece of solder floating loose in a switch and it had shorted out a contact mm-hmm. and turned on this abort light and that was pretty serious because had that happened when we were on the way down to the moon with the engines ignited, ignited in the lunar module, it would have, should have started us into an abort situation and brought us back home. Well, we didn't want that to happen, so we has to, had to disarm that particular circuit. And uh, that put us, instead of a, an automatic abort mode, if we pushed one button, an abort button, it put us in the mode where we'd have to do each and every item uh, on the checklist by hand and individually, we wouldn't have the computer to help us abort if we got into trouble on the way down. So that was kind of a nerve-wracking moment to make sure that we had practice for about two hours. It took two hours, almost two hours, to get back around the moon so we could start down. But it was a very nerve-wracking two hours to make sure we could get everything done that we needed to get done, uh, work around the um, abort switch, which was now disarmed and be able to go on down. So that was probably the most troublesome thing that happened uh, shortly before we started down to the moon. Mm -hmm. Interesting, very interesting. My guest today is Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell, sixth man to walk on the moon. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, you say in your book that on your way back from the moon to Earth, you had an experience, uh, a mystical experience Tell us about that experience. Well, I'm not quite sure <clears throat> mystical is the right word, but uh, mm-hmm. yes, it was a powerful experience. And it was ex- after all of my work was done and I had a chance to look out the window of the spacecraft uh, and enjoy the ride coming home because my work on the surface of the moon was largely completed successfully. And I was just uh, a systems engineer, as it were, we still had work to do, but it wasn't as pressing, of course, as it had been. Mm-hmm. And we were rotating such that it, every two minutes we could see a picture of the Earth, the Moon, the Sun, and a 360-degree panorama of the heavens. Mm-hmm. And um, what I realized from my training my, uh, and studying cosmology and star systems at MIT and Harvard uh, before during my doctoral work, was that the matter in my body had been created in a star system because stars are the furnaces that create um, matter in our universe. And it was felt 
um, that was my matter. Those were my molecules in those ancient stars and that had been created. And that was kind of a very wow type of experience. And it was accompanied by a feeling of ecstasy and wonderment. And uh, this continued all the way home when I had a chance to look out the window a little bit. And it was only after I got home and uh, <clears throat> started doing research on what was the nature of this experience and getting some help from a nearby university uh, professors who were archaeologists and paleontologists and uh, had been studying, you know, studying our history for some time. And I asked them to start some digging in the literature because I could find nothing in the science literature uh, or the religious literature that told me what had happened there. And they came up with uh, um, some work out of the ancient Sanskrit, 5,000 years old, uh, that was called in the Sanskrit samadhi, which meant that you see things in their separateness as they really appear to us as we look at them but you experience them emotionally and viscerally inside as a unity, as one, as a, as a oneness, as a true part of it. And it's, there's an ecstatic, a joyous experience with that. And when they told me that, I said, well, that's exactly what I was feeling. And um, as I've done more research, I know that in all of our ancient languages, um, in the Greek it's called... Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in Sanskrit it's called samadhi, mm-hmm. and uh, in the Greek it has a name, um, oh boy, I'm blocking on it right now, mm-hmm. in uh, Zen Buddhism it's satori or enlightenment, mm-hmm. in the Greek it uh, means change of mind, uh, metanoia is the, right, the word in Greek, mm-hmm. metanoia, and each culture, each culture has in its ancient literature a uh, these types of experiences that humans have when they see something uh, marvelous and exciting that they've never seen before. I call it the big picture experience of seeing Earth and uh, the universe from a totally different perspective as more of a whole and seeing Earth as a tiny little planet in an enormous universe. And that was a trigger that caused this experience for me. but we now do understand that each, all of our cultures, with the early mystics and wise men of that, of the culture, this type of experience was somewhere recorded, somewhere in the history of, of the culture. Mm-hmm. So, is this correct that this experience led you to establish the Institute of Noetic Sciences? Yeah. Well, what it did, <coughs> as I studied my history of science and our Western history, I realized, it's very clearly written in our history, that in the about the 16th century, the uh, philosopher, thinker, member of the, I believe he was a cardinal of the church, uh, by the name of René Descartes, uh, wrote a paper that said, body, mind, physicality, spirituality, belong to different realms of reality. Mm-hmm. that don't interact. And that was called the Cartesian duality. And it had the very noble purpose. It got the inquisition of that period off the backs of the intellectuals 
so that they quit burning them at the stake for disagreeing with the church, as long as they stayed away from mind, consciousness, and, and spiritual matters. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, our science grew up, uh, was formed, and for 400 years uh, was simply about materialism, how do physical things interact. And the notion of consciousness was simply a, a forbidden subject because of the Cartesian duality. But in the beginning, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, between Max Planck, Einstein, and the, uh, the early physicists in the 20th century, quantum mechanics, uh, quantum physics arose. And uh, although throughout most of the 20th century, most physicists have stayed away from consciousness, what they did show in the early 20th century whether the Cartesian duality that body and mind or mind and matter don't interact is simply wrong. Mm-hmm. That they do interact, and uh, the areas that have been called psychic or parapsychology are very real, and they tend to be quantum phenomena. And uh, that's what I realized, and that was the reason I established the Institute of Noetic Sciences almost 40 years ago, 38 years ago was to bring consciousness as a proper subject matter into science and to understand these type of phenomena that had been excluded from subtle phenomena that had been excluded for for science for 400 years. Mm -hmm. So this experience in the outer space transformed you and you became more interested in the study of the inner space uh, and uh, the consciousness. Well, yes, I, I realized that our science is a very important uh, approach to how we understand reality. And if it's being incorrect, because it's not looking at this basic reason of why are we conscious at all, why, what is consciousness in the universe, uh, certainly animal life is conscious, and we now know even plant life is conscious, and this whole area of awareness extends right down to the subatomic level. So it was uh, uh, the fact that uh, science had not addressed for 400 years and could not be complete until we did understand more about consciousness was the reason I did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you briefly mentioned uh, quantum physics a couple of minutes ago. Uh, you say that once you started studying quantum physics, you began to find the clues that you were looking for. Uh, what quantum physics has to do with the consciousness, and what were the clues like that you were looking for, and then you began to find those clues? Well, I had I had studied some of the work of the parapsychologists in the uh, early 20th century. <coughs> who had studied the fact that mind and matter do interact. And uh, in spite of what uh, Descartes had said, and so we started studying that, and we discovered, of course, that with the use of quantum physics, we could start to explain and understand some of the psychic events that science had just refused to look at before. And a couple of examples to help understand that. In the English language, we call uh, our intuition our sixth sense. But in reality, since it's a quantum property, it should be called our first sense, because 
the quantum interactions have been around long before our planet was and our solar system was and before our normal sensory mechanism were either even evolved on this planet. So uh, that, that's just one little metaphor to uh, uh, try to help understand mm-hmm. how that quantum physics is at the basis of our perceptual mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your book, The Way of the Explorer, you present a dyadic model of reality, dyadic model of universal interconnectedness. Uh, please describe mm-hmm. this model to us. Well, that's really what the, the quantum model is, <clears throat> is that we know a lot about energy in the universe. We know about matter in the universe. And what I tried to do was introduce the notion that information is patterns of energy, and it's equally important with uh, that information is as, as important as matter, and it's how we know anything at all. And fundamentally, it's a quantum property of nature. And we have subsequently demonstrated and uh, done experiments with this that show it to be, that to be correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, to understand consciousness, uh, to answer questions such as, who are we? Uh, how did we get here? Do you believe that the mainstream science is looking in the right direction? Well, we have a long ways to go. Yes, we're looking in much of the right direction, but uh, mm-hmm. we have a long ways to go before we find all the answers. <clears throat> I tend to say that uh, we're, we think we're pretty smart, and we are. We've learned a lot during the 20th century and late 19th century and the 20th century. It's, uh, a science has progressed very, very rapidly. But I quite often say to young people that I'm talking to, we're still just barely out of the trees. We don't know it all by any means. We have a lot to learn. Our science is still incomplete and uh, may be flawed in some areas. And so um, that's what we're trying to do is just complete our story of these questions of who are we, how did we get here, and where are we going with all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, in past few years, you have, uh, uh, in your interviews, you have uh, made a number of comments about uh, UFOs and aliens, and uh, these comments have generated few uh, controversies also. Uh, please share with us uh, your views about UFOs and about aliens. Okay. Uh, well, this was has not ever been really my primary uh, in area of interest. Mm-hmm. However, I do did grow up in uh, when I was a boy in the area of the United States in New Mexico, and an area called a town called Roswell, New Mexico, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is known in the UFO lore as the site of a of a crash of a UFO in 1947. Mm-hmm. And I was living there and getting re- a senior in high school when that happened and uh, it was it was reported in the newspaper the local newspaper on one day and the following day it was denied and said that it was a weather balloon <clears throat> so I was on my way to college and I didn't think much more about it however when I came back from the moon and went back to my old hometown to see friends and give a few talks well, there were people from that period, what I call the old-timers from that period, who wanted to talk to me about what they had experienced because they knew had that it had been a crashed UFO 
but they had been hushed up by the military. They'd been told they could not talk about it. But they were getting older, and they wanted somebody to know their story before they passed on. And so they told me. And I subsequently went to our our uh, military in Washington, our Pentagon, mm-hmm. ahead of our military area, told them my story, and we eventually got some confirmation. Now, not at that time from the military, but we got some confirmation. <coughs> I uh, uh, got to have become acquainted with and know personally most of the real strong UFO research people in the East, in the Western world. And I have come to do a lot more work myself. And so I realize that we have been visited by alien visitors from outside our galaxy, outside our solar system. And it now appears that we have been visited for many, many years, uh, perhaps centuries, by these visitors. Now, I have no firsthand experience of this, except I do know I have uh, worked with some of the very fine research scientists that are interested in this area, and uh, I take my lead from what they have taught me and what I've learned from them, and I feel quite quite convinced that we have been visited for many, many years by aliens from uh, outside our solar system. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, if that is true, and we don't know much about it, so it seems that there is a cover-up? Yes, and we have, and I think you know, and many of our uh, <clears throat> listeners will certainly know that over the last few years the government and starting in Belgium and the Soviet Union and France mm-hmm. and recently England and uh, Brazil and Mexico have opened up their files uh, massive files on UFO experiences to the public and uh, but our United States government has not uh, done that so far and so we have been working very hard to get all the information that is uh, <clears throat> available in government files available to the public and I'm sure this will happen in the not too distant future mm-hmm. and uh, uh, mean okay if there is a cover-up uh, do you think that there is a motive behind that or do you think that maybe people are just not ready for that and maybe uh, maybe well, that that may be people may not not being ready may be one excuse mm-hmm. <clears throat> but i think the more likely excuse more likely reason is that uh, uh i'll take a clue from our president eisenhower mm-hmm. who uh, when as he left office back in the 50s after his term as president and as you re- may remember he was a, a major general in in uh, World War II, representing the United States Army, mm-hmm. and then he became president, and as he left office, his, some of his parting speech was about, beware the military-industrial complex, that they don't get too much power. And that is exactly uh, the issue, I believe, here, is this uh, idea of space travel and traveling into outside our solar system to galaxies that is about power and control and profit. Uh, the people who own owns and has that that knowledge would be very powerful, and I'm sure that's what it's all about. It's not nearly about uh, uh, protecting the people. It's about money and power. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, have you uh, seen any evidence um, in this regard? Are you, as you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that you have close friends who have done research in this area and you respect their views? So that's the reason. Well, in this area, uh, yes, I have personally done research too, and I <clears throat> I agree with much of what has uh, the leading the leading research people, both in the United States and in Europe, that have worked on this. Uh, we're pretty much in agreement on what has been discovered. Mm-hmm. Now, one uh, a little bit sensitive question. Uh, you might have come across a number of people who believe that uh, uh, that we never went to the moon, and they believe that it was all fabricated. How do you respond yep. to those views? <clears throat> Very simply, mm-hmm. do you really think the Soviet Union would have allowed us to fabricate that and not be truthful? We were in a race with the Soviet Union mm-hmm. to uh, get to the moon first. And uh, they knew exactly what we were doing. And if we had been trying to fake it, uh, it would have been the first thing they would have said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, and one more thing, that uh, we never went back to Moon. Uh, what was the reason? Well, I think <clears throat> uh, President Kennedy, who put us on this uh, track to go to the Moon, what he essentially did was uh, he, he uh, pulled a time frame out of the 21st century because he was well ahead of his time and proposing something that the American people and the economic community were not really ready to address, but he uh, had this magnificent idea of going to the moon, getting a, lead, getting a head start, getting a lead, and we did it. But uh, we, all, we, we planned 10 missions of going to the moon. We only did six uh, landing on the moon uh, because the con- our Congress and the people just weren't ready to do it, do more of it. And we still, after 40 years now, uh, actually 30, 38 years now, we still haven't gone back again, but I'm sure we will here and before long. Mm-hmm. And it uh, may not be the United States. It may be, it may be China or India or somebody else that goes, but we'll be going back to the moon before long. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are your views about the current uh, uh, state of uh, of um, uh, space programs uh, by NASA or even by European Union? Uh, are you happy we have a space station? Yes. Well, just recognize that we have had a a uh, a world recession, a major recession here in the last few years mm-hmm. that has uh, been damaged the world economic system. And our president here, like governments in Europe and Britain and I'm sure even in Ireland, have had to work to start to uh, rebuild the economic system Very in true. the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was more important to start rebuilding the economic system. We will go on back to the moon in due course. What our president has essentially done was to uh, tell the uh, private the uh, private uh, economic interest, private business, uh, get involved in this. And uh, let's use your money and your resources and your creativity to go back into space. And I get our (coughs) listeners to recall that when the aircraft, airplanes were invented at the beginning of the 20th century, it was less than 20 years before we had an airline industry and people were flying in airlines and uh, things like that. So 
what this is really follow this is really following that and we're trying to get private industry into the space business and they're doing so there's a lot of companies at this moment working on having space flight and um, getting average people into into space flight mm-hmm. uh, as i am speaking with an explorer who has not only explored the outer space but is also exploring the inner space uh, so i have two final questions uh, say 100 years from now what are the major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage in the exploration of outer space and in the study of consciousness so let us first look at the future of space program say next 100 years what are your expectations well let's let me put that in a little different way mm-hmm. <clears throat> we have a major problem on our hands right now and uh, sustainability of civilization is at risk because we're using up uh we're damaging our environment at an alarming rate mm-hmm. we're using up resources non-renewable resources at an alarming rate mm-hmm. and we have to be able to overcome these problems that we have created for ourselves now if we assume that we're going to overcome these problems and it's not obvious that we can do so if we overcome them in the space area i'm sure we will be able to go outside of our solar system with um, uh, perhaps the way the ETs do by the end of this century but we've got to get past our problem of sustainability of the end system itself um, and as far as space is concerned that's what will happen provided we don't kill ourselves off with our wars and fighting over who's got the best god and uh, border disputes and such silly things as we've been doing for so many years we've got to learn to, to live in, with cooperation and at peace with each other and that's the first task that has to take place mhm 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 and uh, do you think that uh, uh, in this regard we are moving in the right direction or do you think well, that well right now we've got a lot of problems yes no we're not really completely moving in the right direction yet mhm but there's a lot of us working to to mm-hmm. move us in that direction Mm-hmm. and there's a possibility we'll succeed but uh, it's uh, the next few years are going to be very difficult mhm this is a very very interesting point that you have raised and you want to a little bit expand on this the sustainability the way we are living on this planet well yes it's uh, uh you don't <coughs> every every measure of human activity since the beginning of the 20th century has started to exhibit exponential growth it doesn't take genius to understand exponential growth cannot take place in a finite space mm-hmm. and we are every measure of activity that we humans are engaged in is growing exponentially we have to rethink and redo that and a part of it a part of it is so much of our money and our resources are going into warlike behavior uh the m- wars in the middle east um the dictators uh damaging the people mm-hmm. uh using their their money and their armor uh to hurt people and shut and make this a better place to live that has got to stop or we will end up destroying ourselves mm-hmm. and but it's possible and there are a lot of people working on it and if we just all get together and start to think in those directions we can make it happen mm-hmm. 
okay uh, now about inner space about consciousness will we ever fully understand the nature of reality around us uh, will we ever understand who we are and what is all this about well as I say we're just barely out of the trees at this point <clears throat> but we're making progress and if we can get past this issue of sustainability and work on these deep questions of science and cosmology and how we came to be then I think we might have some answers I don't think we will do it in the next 15 or 20 years however and that is the time frame we have to resolve the sustainability problem. But I think that if we can get through the next half century, uh, and we will have some real answers to these problems of consciousness, to some of the great mysteries of our being and our becoming. And uh, as you know, <coughs> the new uh, images from the Hubble telescope and from the various devices we now have showing us what the universe is like are showing uh, us a universe that is uh, much more expansive and complex and full of life and full of galaxies and galactic clusters and planets and stars far more than we ever thought even 20 years ago so it's a new it's a new world out there and we have a lot to learn and if we get our act together, we can learn it. Otherwise, we're going to kill ourselves off. Uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.